Welcome to Origins, podcast about the LP and VC ecosystem. We're back. I'm Nick from Notation with Beezer from Sapphire Partners. Hey, good to be here. Welcome, Beezer. We're getting we're getting used to this now. Um, we have Atul Rustigi, who's the managing partner at Accolade Partners, joining us in a few minutes. They run big fund of funds, investing in early stage venture, late stage growth and private equity, and also they have a crypto fund of funds. So we're going to talk about all of those things. Um, going to just generally dig into where we are in the market. Beezer and Atal are just going to jam. They were having a, what I think Beezer called a love fest on email ahead of time, mutual respect for what they do. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited about it. I thought the last episode was great with Lon. Got lots of great feedback from that. Um, and thinks think folks really enjoyed that. So excited about this one too. How are you feeling about the the markets week? Better before. than was it two weeks before with SVB? So so yeah. better ish. Right? Um, yeah. Gonna be optimistic. Keep we're keeping on keeping on. Feels like we're through at least the last existential crisis and chapter and say, please go knock on some wood. Now I think that <laughs> the number of unprecedented things we've all had to live through in the last couple of years is way higher than I think either any of us would like. So I'm going with the little, a little pleasant and normal would be fine. Crazy. Crazy. Um, what do you see your managers do? I mean, we're setting up, kind of backup accounts. We're still with SVB. Uh, similar yeah, we're, activity. I would say we're seeing what foots with the general market experience, which is if folks that hadn't different, hadn't diversified, looking into diversification, um, people are staying in different places where they were. There's some up, uh, uprooting and totally changing, but I, that feels anecdotally like the minority. And to the conversation that was going on around SVB, there was a reason why there were tech-focused banks. And there are some products in venture that are just not, has not been the main product of a larger bank. And so we'll see how the market sorts on that, right? I'm sure, you know, you and I have talked about this. Like, there's a reason why yeah. these banks existed, right? Well, we, many, many smaller managers in particular now understand that very well. I mean, we've talked to some of the big banks since and have gotten a bunch of, no thanks. Call us when you're a billion. Um, we're like, we're never going to be that. So I guess we'll never call you. <laughs> um, but yes, well, it has been a good reminder of what these banks do. Yeah, there's some neo banks that have been stepping in that we've seen, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, so I think the market's resorting. I think it's a, I think mostly I'm having a very empathetic response, which is it's hard enough to do a startup and to figure out your product and to get your product market fit and then figure out your team and your culture and your all that stuff. And it's not that one should never have been financially on the front foot, but it's, it's just a lot. And maybe the industry should come up with some template norms of like, here's things when you're day one of your company and maybe YC already offers this, I don't know. But some of these things I feel like shouldn't be, if, if your arbitrage is, you know how to use a banking account better than your competitor. I don't, I don't know if that's the arbitrage we really want in the yeah. industry. Yeah. Oddly enough, a lot of the crypto companies we work with were less exposed and more resilient. Say more. As in, as in they've been thinking about banking risk to their business, partly because bankers and regulators are hostile to crypto. So they've been thinking about that as a risk for a very long time. And turned out many of them you know, had, if they did bank with SVB, had backup options and other things of the work. So oddly enough, in some ways, crypto was more prepared, but I totally agree that of all the things you're worried about at a pre-seed or seed stage startup, uh, thinking about whether or not your bank is solvent is probably not the, or banking strategy is probably not the way you're going to win and way you want to spend your time. But crypto companies, this was nothing new. Yeah, no, no, but maybe this is something the investor base, LPs included, just need to spend a little bit more time saying, here's the playbook, right? Along with all the other value-added services, maybe this is just one we've been slow to, to do, but now the time is made clear is important. 
Yeah. Or every fund just uh, keeps all their reserves in Bitcoin now on hard wallets. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I was like, really? <laughs> just kidding. Not talked about. <laughs> well, we had a brief call over the weekend. I mean, I won't spill all the beans about maybe actually Bitcoin is the safest place to be over the weekend. We did not do that, but... There's been some Twitter discussion. I mean, Thursday and Friday was dark enough. I know we're going Thursday and Friday a month ago. We're going back a little bit, but it was dark enough where, I mean, we had a conversation. We thought at least considered is, is Bitcoin actually over the weekend safer than U.S. dollar bank accounts? We didn't go there, but we had the thought. So conversations. Anyway, conversations. Anyway, let's do this. Um, with Atul. Okay, let's get to Atul and um, here we go. Hi, Atul. Hi, Beezer. Um, we just had a really good conversation um, where we covered all the really interesting <laughs> off-the-record stuff. <laughs> so let's uh, let's cover some on-the-record stuff. Thanks for joining us, Atul. Yes, great to be on again. Quickly, could you tell us about just quick background on you and Accolade? Uh, so Ackley Partners, we are a fund of funds uh, based in Washington, D.C., uh, been around 20 years, over $5 billion of AUM. Uh, we invest across the private equity landscape from classic venture capital to PE growth uh, to blockchain. And we have some funds that commingle those strategies, some that are distinct to each. Um, and, yeah, um, I've been doing this. Uh, me, personally, I've been at the firm now 15 years. There are seven partners at the firm um, and uh, able to cover all of those uh, areas of venture, P, growth, and blockchain. Um, and then also part of that, we have a strategy including, we call empowerment, which focus on women and minority GPs in the venture and PE side. We have Beezer as well, who's now officially our co-host. And I think it'd be helpful to folks. I think folks hear many different flavors of fund to funds. I don't know if Beezer, you would exactly describe yourself as a fund to fund. But I think it would be helpful just quickly if either of you could actually maybe compare and contrast the different strategies and maybe how that's relevant for managers. Within the fund to fund world or how fund to funds are different from um, just other using kinds Sapphire of and Accolade as an example. Okay, Atul, you're going to have to help me. I think we're more alike than dissimilar. I mean, we do have a single source of an LP base, which is different. So I'd yes. say probably the primary difference is you fundraise from a range of folks and can talk about that. I would, but I would say that is the biggest difference, yeah. right? So, I mean, our LPs span the gamut of endow institutions like endowments, foundations, pensions, individuals, family offices, global in nature, U.S. LPs, European, Asian, Australia, New Zealand. Um, so we, we have hundreds of LPs in our LP base. Uh, Beezer, which I'm very jealous of, has one. <laughs> so uh, much easier fundraising process, but also more customer concentration. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's been an issue for you guys over the years. No, knock on wood, we've been very fortunate. Yes. Um, but I think the way we approach the business is pretty similar. I mean, on the venture, and where we overlap the most is on the venture side. Uh, and we're very much focused on early stage manager seed, series A, um, on the PE growth side, I don't think we overlap as much. Um, that's something that, I mean, even as you compare us to other fund of funds, uh, we mainly interact with other fund of funds that are on the venture side. Uh, very few are on the PE growth side the way we are. So we're a little bit unique and alone there. Um, and on the blockchain side, we're pretty early on there. We started raising this dedicated vehicle in 2019. Uh, we're, we're on our third fund now. Um, and up until recently, we were alone there too. Like nobody else had a dedicated vehicle. Uh, some folks dabbled in blockchain through their core funds. Um, and then at the end of 2021, a few kind of stood up and said they wanted to raise dedicated vehicles. But even for you, Beezer, I believe your blockchain and crypto exposure comes from your, your main pooled vehicle. So there's nothing distinct Correct. as of yet. Correct. We've not broken it out. We do it. Yeah. We do everything as part of it. And to your point, we just focus on venture, so we do not overlap with you on your other, yeah, uh, PE and growth stuff. But but admire the work that you do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're just 
on your coattails on the private, on the venture <laughs> side. So you were with Nick and Notation in their fun one, and we came in fun two. Yeah. So. Pros and cons of having all those different strategies under one accolade umbrella. Uh, for me, I think the, one of the big advantages is, I mean, there are LPs that want venture only, or they want PE growth only, or they want blockchain. So, um, we, you know, we did consider particularly on the blockchain side, should we just put it as part of the, the, un, under one of the other products and, you know, the, where the debate basically came out is we wanted to we did not want to deter LPs. Like they understand what our venture and PE growth looks like. Uh, it's uh, it's been very consistent over the past two decades. But in injecting a new type of strategy in there could deter folks because some people even back as 2019 thought blockchain was crazy. Some people still think it's crazy. Um, and so we w didn't want to deter people. So by having a separate product focused just on blockchain. It allows, and same with PE growth versus venture, it allows people to pick and choose what their risk appetite is, what areas they want to focus on. Um, and so it's kind of like an a la carte menu where if, if they like all three, they can do all three. If they want one of them, they can do one of them. So, so unlike a GP that staples all their funds and makes an LP do all of them, you allow folks to choose? Yes. Uh, I mean, we've we've allowed LPs to do. I, I personally do not like when GPs staple things. Um, I think you should let the market determine if your LPs want fund A and fund B. Um, and by stapling them, I think you're kind of forcing folks to uh, to do both, even if they don't want to. So we don't like when GPs do that to us, and therefore we don't want to do that to our own LPs. So I would say this is something that I think if an LP has other LPs, right, in, in Oswald's case, this one said, if you're a family office, you have families. I think there is a lot of appreciation for what it feels like to be on the LP side when you yourself have to then work with an LP, which, so I, I'm obviously biased, but I do a shout out to that because I think it does just change a little bit of the of the experience. And I'm sure there's an equivalent experience for a foundation or endowment and what their fiduciary responsibilities are, but yeah. um, I kind of, I, I also think similarity. throughout the whole stack, right? So Nick is an investor in companies and he has his own investors, right? Not exactly the same, but we're in the same boat too. We we invest in Nick and other VC funds, and we have our own investors. So, I don't. Our our whole approach is uh, whatever kind of terms or deal or relationship we give our LPs. I I want to feel like we're willing to take the other side of that. So to be truly fair, and so uh, the way you know we want to be treated by our GPs is the way we want to treat our LPs. And I would assume Nick, where you're sitting. Uh, you have that same dynamic, like the way you have a relationship with your CEOs, you want to have the same type of dynamic with your LPs. And I just think that's the right way to operate. If you're in this for the long run, you know, I think that's a great um, kind of foundation and dynamic to have. Yeah, I think many of the younger founders we work with are always somewhat surprised that we also have investors and have to raise capital, um, but also appreciate it. And many of the many of the other uh, maybe they're working at a partner at a firm that's fund six or seven has is not involved in the fundraising process there, and um, and and also lacks that same same empathy in a, in a, in in a way because they're not doing their own fundraising and they're yeah. just showing up for for a job every day. Um, we talked about stapling. I just want to define that real quick. Is GPs maybe having an early stage fund, a growth fund, a crypto fund, and forcing LPs to do all of those funds um, rather than picking and choosing which ones. And I would say the prominent dynamic over the past few years is they have their early stage venture fund, and then they have an opportunities fund, which will do the later rounds of their own companies, maybe go outside their portfolio. And so what was been stapled for many years now is the seed series A fund stapled along with the opportunities funds. And Unfortunately, more and more recently, the Opportunity Fund was bigger than the early right. stage funds. So if you're allocating X amount of dollars, you're actually more weighted towards the later stage product than the early stage. Um, and I think generally LPs had more interest in the early stage fund, not the later stage funds. So question for you is that is that changing now? Are you starting to see that change? And similarly... I'm just curious, maybe top two or three things that you're starting to see maybe cracks around. Maybe it's stapling of funds related to the market today compared to the last few years. 
I'd say anecdotally, we're seeing the stapling of the opportunity fund for an early stage fund changing. I can think of a couple of funds raising this year. Can't name names because they're not out in the market yet, where they've collapsed their early and their opportunity fund into one vehicle. But this is when they've they're sort of newer in the opportunity growth vehicle world. So I don't I don't think we've seen this behavior yet in say like the Sequoias, the much larger multi-stage that have that out there, that that TBD. Haven't seen that yet, but we're definitely seeing some of the other folks condense it, and we're seeing some of the folks. It's not that they're necessarily raising less. Sometimes they might be. I can think of one case where they are going to raise less. I can think of other cases where they just took the two and squashed it together. So it's the same dollar amount overall. Yeah, I would say if you look at the top 10 Series A firms out there, not, and correct me if I'm wrong, Beezer, none of them are raising right now. Um, in fact, um, a lot of them who thought they would be raising this year have punted to next year. Uh, acknowledging that, or maybe not outrightly acknowledging, but I assume this is what they're thinking, that this is a tough fundraising environment. LPs are over-allocated. Let's not force any negative decisions. Let's wait till next year. Maybe the environment's better. Um, so when you look at the non-top 10, like the, you know, the other Series A firms or the seed funds, you know, the, the last seed fund we invested in does not have an opportunity fund, never did, um, not considering one right now. Uh, and one that we're looking at right now um, has, again, never had an opportunity fund and still not considering it. I'm hoping if this downturn lasts uh, longer that we will start seeing, one, we'll see the stapling disappear. Uh, but secondly, we might start seeing opportunity funds shrink and maybe even go away. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see that dynamic change over time. Now, with a top five, top ten firm, that might not change uh, just because in an environment like this, which is similar to 0809, LPs consolidate their relationships, consolidate their dollars. So you have winners and losers, and I think the top five, top ten firms will be winners, and they'll be able to still raise what whatever they want to raise with an opportunity fund and staple them. Yes. As someone said to me who was investing in a – I was asking them an LP about what their return expectations were on a very large late-stage growth fund – and, and sort of the multi multi state in a multi stage stack, and their their answer was I thought was just so intriguing because they're like, well, I don't know about the returns because you just do the math on the portfolio and you'd have to have pretty amazing exits, which we all hope will happen, but TBD. But there's so many great investors in that shop that to get exposure to those investors, they felt obliged to invest, even if they didn't like the construction of the fund, and that's I think a, a very typical LP conundrum. Now, I want to give a counter-argument for opportunity funds in this environment. I think if you're being contrarian, it actually might be the best time to invest in these opportunity funds, given where valuations are, assuming you can actually get a transaction done. Um, in 2020, 2021, where late-stage deals in the Series C or D were being done at 50-plus times revenues, top of the market, not the best time to be investing. Um, again, if you can get a transaction done today, I would have to believe those would be done at much more compelling valuation. So uh, you can make, maybe you can make an argument, again, to give both sides of this, that uh, this could be the best time to be doing opportunity funds because valuations are lower. Um, and it's not like 99, 2000, where these companies are going to zero and going away. Uh, they're going to survive. It just might take a few more years uh, to get to that IPO or an M&A. But it could be, I think it's a more compelling time now to be doing mid to late stage VC than it was in 2020, 2021. Yeah, how do you feel about some of these funds and managers um, doing recaps and down rounds and restructuring many of these companies? Because I imagine you could imagine a lot of opportunity fund capital or growth fund capital going into recaps and restructurings. Recaps and restructurings are really hard, like really hard, take a ton of work. So to your point, I do think I do think it's going to happen. Everything GPs are now starting to talk about down rounds and portfolio losses in a way that we've not been hearing up until, uh, I'd say it's all been in like, we're now April. So in the month of March, I started to hear it for the first time and like really, really hearing it. I think the gross preference is if you have to do it, do a clean down round because the restructuring and the recapping just, it's really hard lift. It's a hard lift for the company. It's a hard lift for the GP. I think somebody said this, so I, I can't give who there was credits. I can't remember, but they were basically like the, the odds of a white knight coming in from the outside 
or any other color night for that matter, and recapping your company in some lovely holistic way is just not going to happen. Like it's going to be an insider led thing, or it's going to be pretty predatory and it's, it's still not going to be easy. So do a, do a clean down round and move on and live to fight another day was the general temperament I'm hearing. And I would agree. I don't think we've seen much of that yet. Uh, Cause one thing, the beauty of tech is you can extend cash runway because there's minimal fixed costs. It's mainly, you know, staff and code is, for, I mean, marginal cost of code is zero. So we haven't seen much, and most of these companies have had 12 to 24 months of cash. Um, if they've done any insider round, it's been a, a flat valuation by the insider, so everybody can maintain their valuation. I think the sense is by the end of this year, some of those companies will need to raise and have to go out to the market. So I'm, I think we are expecting more volatility in the valuation second half of this year. Um, and I mean, it is what it is. Like if, if you can't raise at a prior valuation, you haven't grown enough, it will have to be a down round. And um, to your point, Beezer, either it's going to be the insiders leading that or somebody from the outside, which will be much more predatory. How are you guys rethinking your own strategies in this market, if at all? I don't think we're, re I mean, I think we're sticking to our core uh, and to focus on the venture side. Um, and actually, even on the blockchain side, is to stick with early stage managers. Um, I think the biggest change this last year and this year is just deployment pace to slow down. And I think, which is a positive. Uh, in, in 2020 and 2021, we were getting back to the annual fundraises, sometimes even shorter, six to nine months, uh, which was very reminiscent of 99, 2000. That was a sign of the top of the market. We're now back to that two to three year deployment pace. So. I think that there's nothing but positives there. Um, so we're not, we're not changing our approach at all, uh, focusing on early stage managers, um, seed, series A, uh, and instead of having to worry about managers coming back in 12 months, 18 months, now it's 24, 36 months, and we can dig in deeper in their portfolios, uh, just really get to know the managers better than we had been over the past you know, two, three years. I agree with everything you said, and I would say pretty much, I haven't talked to an LP yet who said, I'm out of venture. I've definitely talked to a, pretty much every LP that's reassessing their portfolio and trying to figure out how much more exposure they want now, because to what Atul was saying, so many LPs had to pull forward essentially their venture allocation, given their, how fast people were raising. And TVPI is ticking down, generally speaking, I would I'm making this up because I don't see everybody's numbers, but I'm assuming most TVPI is ticking down across the board given the public markets and the flat valuations. Um, so everyone's sort of assessing where their portfolio is. I think a lot of people, honestly, we're just getting Q4 reports, which I know it's April, but that's how it works in LP <laughs> land, which means you're only now understanding what happened five months ago. And then there's still a huge TBD on the second half of this year. So again, most LPs I talk to are like, I don't know still going to assume a haircut, which means portfolio not in the shape that it looked like it was a year from a year ago. Even if we knew a year ago, it wasn't in the shape that it looked like we're now actually getting the data that supports that. I would agree. I don't think it, I haven't heard anybody saying they're stepping away from venture, but they are smoothing out and extending their runway. So uh, they're, they've slowed down their deployment pace and, you know, uh, what they might've done in one year might be now over two to three years. Um, the one thing in terms of valuations I consistently feel I'm hearing is that venture valuations aren't reflective of, uh, they have, they're not marked out enough. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can still see sporadically within portfolios companies that, um, you know, have five, 10 million of revenues, but the manager's still holding it on, on their books for between 500 to a billion dollar valuation. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing in some managers different, different uh, valuations across various funds. Um, and maybe the belief is, look, we have a preference stack. We can at least get that back. So we're holding it at cost. Uh, but I don't, I think generally LPs, whether it be fund of funds or even endowments foundations, uh, they don't think the current valuations are reflective of what, real value. So you're right. These are, they're coming down slowly. Uh, we're starting to get Q4 numbers, nothing dramatic there in our portfolio. Uh, but it's, it's taking time for them to really come down. So Beezer and I were sharing an article this week from Adam Marchik, um, who's a um, invests in privates and venture from from Emory University, and he was basically arguing that you can't really look at TVPI or any of the benchmarks 
um, at the moment and maybe for the next year or two. My, my question for both of you is that were those, were those ever good, accurate benchmarks? Like, is it, has it TVPI ever been relevant? I I mean, it's, it's, it's largely some other venture firm that's marking it. And, and it's not necessarily correlated to ultimate DPI as in cash on cash returns. I would agree. So, I mean, I so told for you is like, why even go through this whole exercise of TVPI? Why not just like, I've, I've often thought in the past, why not mark everything at cost, <laughs> keep it at cost and show the underlying metrics of the company. Yeah. And then we can all talk about actually what that company might be worth. I've told my LPs in good years, we're not as up as the market is. And in bad years, we're not as down as the market. So just due to the accounting, uh, uh, standard and how it's done, like we're somewhat of a hedge. So it just, it, we're always more muted on the up and down uh, than you would expect. I think it would be hard to keep it at cost uh, indefinitely until you have an exit, particularly in venture where it could be how many years, a decade plus before you have a liquidity event. I will tell you what we do when we evaluate managers is exactly that. We look at revenue, revenue growth, where the valuations are, what revenue multiple is that, and make our own projection of every company, or at least the ones that move the needle, to get a sense of a projected return of a GP. Um, yep. And every billion dollar or every $500 million valuation is not the same, because some of them are on companies that are doing 5 to $10 million in revenue. Some are on companies doing $50 million in revenues. So we basically reevaluate our... Uh, our GP's uh, metrics when we're doing our analysis and our re-ups. But, um, I mean, the reason why TVPI matters is people need to assess whether you're <laughs> assess performance, right? It's the scoreboard. It's the scoreboard for a GP versus other GPs. It's the scoreboard for endow fund to funds to tell their LPs we're doing well. It's the scoreboard for endowments foundations to see if they're performing well versus their peers. So there needs to be some metric. Um, but TVPI, yeah, I, TVPI highly flawed yeah, um, it's not perfect and and the, the challenge for a for a manager is that um we spend a lot of time thinking through valuations thinking going through audits of those valuations and it's all sort of like finger in the yes. wind um and so it's a lot of time spent for the manager and then it's a highly imperfect metric for lps um, yeah. Like, do you how much how much does TVPI factor into an investment decision, and how are and how are you specifically looking at that metric or others today with managers that you meet? I think if you just look at it to the points that you're both making, then you're missing a much much bigger picture. But that said, I think a lot of GPs in the last five years lead with that metric because that's what they've been taught matters, and so it's the but my TVPI is five x, aren't I awesome? Maybe. Maybe not. Like that. That that alone is insufficient. Same thing with the IRR. I, we we we're we're so in the same camp of thinking with you guys. But you have to be able to understand what's going on underneath. Um, yeah. And I would also say to the managers who are wanting to raise this year and maybe even to next year, understanding and doing doing what you said in addition to the TVPI, Nick, like offering up the fundamentals of the companies and where they're at. Even if it's for the earlier stage investors, if it's like where are they in the road to product market fit, I think it's going to be more and more important. I think last year was all about how much run rate do your companies have. And I think we're just, everyone is now aware that if you, even if you have three years of run rate, but you don't have product market fit, your valuation might be more wobbly than translation your TVPI. And there's all sorts of big name companies out there that we could talk about. Um, but folks, what LPs may or may not be as, might be doing their own internal haircuts mentally because on their portfolio return math, you're like, well, is that company really going to exit for $10 billion if they don't have product market fit? But they don't have to come to market for three years, so we're just going to have to wait three years to know? Like, we're rational investors. You can do that math in your head. But I think, Nick, you're spot on. I mean, you, ha you have to really focus on the under underlying metrics. And we have one of our seed managers is having their annual meeting in the next <clears throat> month or two. And th that was the one thing I said to them was, you know, go through every company, talk about the underlying metrics and give your LPs a sense of, you know, the marks for this company might be inflated. This might is just right. And this might be under, you know, this might be lower than what yeah. it should be. So uh, that level of transparency I get can give LPs comfort. So removing metrics, TVPI, DPI, why, 
Why would you do a new manager today? Why would you invest in a new manager? Assuming the numbers are thin, what, and I'm sure you guys both have, what would be the reasons to, to do it? A new manager, meaning like a first time fund or a new manager in our portfolio or both? Yeah, or... first or second time fund, third time fund. I mean, I would say broadly speaking, if you believe in buy low, sell high, this is a good time to be putting money to work. Again, to be contrarian. I mean, it rem it's not exactly, it's not even close to the same, but there's some uh, elements that are very consistent with 08, 09. I mean, it was really hard for us to raise capital in venture. It was hard for VC firms to raise capital. That ended up being the best vintage we have as a firm. Hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's, if you believe in buy low, sell high, which I jokingly say humans do a great job of buying high, selling low, um, this is a great time to be putting money to work. So if you find a compelling GP, could be an existing one that's on fund three or four or an emerging one on fund one or fund two, um, I do think 10 years from now we'll look back and say, yeah, that was obvious. It was a valuations were low. This, this was a good yeah. time to be putting money to work. Yeah. And I can talk out names of managers like Andreessen was started during the downturn before and Union Square back in the day. So like, as, a, as an LP, you can like call up these names and be like, oh, but so-and-so started and it was just tougher. Um, so all the good things happened that Atul was mentioning. I would also yeah. say the reasons for doing new managers to your portfolio are still true. Like none of those have changed. It's just a question of are there dollars and where, when, when an LP is investing, correct me if you invest differently, but it's, it's about believing in the potential of the GP and how it is additive to your portfolio. And sometimes yeah. you want more of something that you have. And sometimes you're like, I have enough risk exposure in XYZ. So unless I think you're better than my existing manager in this space, I'm not going to make the swap. And I would say that's where the bar is a lot higher for newer people. Cause if you have to out, if you have to get somebody out of somebody's existing portfolio, like that's, that's a high bar and it's, it's done. It's not that it's not done. I think people just need to recognize LPs don't show up every year with a clean slate of like, it's, it's all the same, same. It's not, it's being weighed against what they already have for the gross majority of time. Yeah. And I would I mean, also say one other caveat that I think the, the, the thing, the things LPs say in the room in the quiet voice is how many of their current managers have become so much, much bigger firms have moved potentially into different strategies and they might want to do a new manager to let's say someone wants to do more early stage, but their dollars have gotten more into like the growth stages because of everything in the market. Would they need to start with somebody fresh to get some new early stage exposure? I'm getting phone calls from other LPs saying like, what are you seeing in the market if we want something new? Because, because we, we may or may not love to stay with who we're with, but we want something newer and fresher, yep. a new go to market, a new way of thinking, like all the reasons why you want new in your portfolio. What are the odds yeah, some always, of those firms? You always want to replenish and refresh the portfolio on a, consistent basis so there's always a place for new emerging managers in a portfolio. what are the odds that some of those firms go back to where they started like firm x raised 100 million dollar seed fund and then they raised a 400 million dollar seed fund and a big growth fund and they say or maybe are you guys seeing any of this like actually going back to what make us great going back to the 100 million dollar seed fund are we we saw it in 2001, but the market was so brutal. I think the market drove a lot of that thinking as well. So you could do it in conjunction, right? Very famously, I think CRV tweeted about this. They retracted, I don't know what it was, half a billion, billion dollars and laid off. Because PS, to do that, you usually have to lay off a bunch of people. They downsized their team considerably. Um, Benchmark gave back a ton of money back in the day. I, I don't know if you're going to see like a real... Whether or not one should is one question, but I feel like the reality of these firms have people and like the laying off of lots of people is hard. Like th that's, it's very that's hard. not, it's, that's not didn't, a simple decision. Didn't Founders Fund just announce they're releasing their LPs of like half their commitment and downsizing the I, fund? I it's still not going down to... That they carved it into two, but they weren't releasing the commitment. Okay. I can't remember how much they raised. Let's say they raised two billion. They didn't. The number was different, but it's easy math. They're like, we're going to keep a billion now and the other billions for our next fund. Yeah, but at least that is in the right direction, right? That Correct. Br There's two ways of thinking about whether or not you want to be pushed out into a fund. Give, we're going to give the money back, but actually we're going to keep it for our next fund. Well, but from a map, from a portfolio map perspective, it makes sense. I mean, that's the right thing. So Correct. now- What I don't know is if they gave the LPs the option to get to not do the second fund and just get yeah. their money back, because that would be from an LP standpoint, the, the fairest way of doing it. I agree. 
to answer your question, Nick, I haven't seen anybody really uh, kind of retrace back to an earlier fund size yet. I mean, there's one GP I know of where uh, they were two of them. Now it's one. And so this person's going back to their roots and raising a smaller fund. Um, I don't think that has to do with the environment more so than just they want to, this is the strategy they want to employ. But again, depending how long this downturn lasts, you might see um, when what everybody's doing right now is just delaying fundraising, yeah. uh, pushing it to next year, hoping that the market turns, interest rates start going down, market turns, and everybody everything's back to normal. Um, the longer so this downturn lasts, to raise then. What? If everybody else is pushing it out to next year, is this the best time to raise? Um, if you're a good firm, with it's a it's you're it's always a good time to raise. I mean, again, there yeah. are some winners and losers. Um, so if you have the right team, right track record, right strategy, uh, it's still a good time to raise. If you don't have that, then it's a bad time to raise. What are your What are your best managers doing? Like, what are your best managers doing that makes you feel great, makes you trust them more, makes you um, just like grateful that yeah. they're doing X, Y, and Z? I'll tell you the one thing that I appreciated maybe I mean, not about now, but in 2020, 2021 is um, a lot of our great managers did not accelerate their deployment pace. Uh, they stuck to the two to three year pace. Um, and I really appreciated that. I mean, that really showed me a lot about their discipline, even when they were if they were raising a subsequent fund. The, type, the fund size they raised showed me a lot of discipline, like showed me a lot about their behavior, their way they think. And I, I'm we remember that. Um, and so I think the way some folks uh, behaved in 2020 and 2021 really stands out to me uh, mm. today. I echo that. And then I would say the best managers, if we're defining best as people that are consistently um, great investors as noted by their return profile, right? So we're just going to say like it's a, it's a numbers driven definition, which may or may not be fair, but if we're going to just define it that way. My experience is they know what their special sauce is. And so maybe that special sauce can flex into a slightly bigger fund or a slightly different strategy. And there's, it's not to say that you have to stand still, but they know what makes them special and they they hone to that. And that that's part of being great. If you don't know what you're doing, if you don't, if you're taking advantage of a market dislocation, it's not that a great manager can't do that. But if your whole bet is like the market's dislocated, I'm just going to run this little bit of a market. That's a short term strategy. It can be it can be lucrative, not arguing that it can't be. But then when the market changes, you're exposed to the market driving you, not you driving your business. Right. Yeah, it's kind of the difference between like an arbitrage short term, some, you know, little pocket of the market you can arbitrage versus a real long-term which again if you want to do strategy. one or two funds and like hit that arbitrage kind of like you know hedge fund mentality yeah. like good on you maybe you can make a ton of money for you and your lps and your employees and your employees and the entrepreneurs but if you want to be in business for 20 30 years knowing what makes you special and being special at it that's what we see the best do so let's talk just switch gears a bit sort of related to specific sectors and markets and maybe even hype cycles. Um, so, because you could argue that some of those are maybe moments in time. Like we think, uh, I'm just making this up, crypto is gonna be really important for the next five years. We're gonna raise two crypto funds. We're gonna do that and then call it a day. Or we're seeing a lot of this in AI now. Uh, Atul, you have a whole dedicated crypto practice yeah. Um, curious, do you have other like sector specific managers? Are you thinking, well, Beezer, we did our last podcast with Lan from Basis Set, mm -hmm. who's just focused on AI. Um, curious how you think about sector to specific strategies. Um, and also maybe some of the hype cycle in AI now and how to invest in that. So we tend to shy away from sector specific bets because um, we believe the generalist firms will still command the best deal flow and the best entrepreneurs and get access to those companies. For us, we viewed blockchain as uh, a, a business model innovation within technology. We still categorize as tech. Um, I mean, tech has gone from like mainframe to desktop to mobile to cloud. I mean, I remember when Emergence came out with their cloud strategy. Everybody's like, that is so 
specific. Now you, everything's <laughs> right. cloud, right? Like every yeah. software company is cloud. Yeah. That's ubiquitous. I'm not saying blockchains have become ubiquitous, but I do think what our conviction came in uh, came about for blockchain in the depths of 18 and 19, when it was a bear market, a crypto winter. And we viewed it as a seismic shift of going from centralized business models to decentralized business models. And our belief for the next X number of years, um, it might be a separate distinct strategy, just like cloud was for emergence. But at some point, it's going to become mainstream tech, mainstream venture, and that the two worlds will collapse. And so our conviction there really came, again, in the bear market, the crypto winner, but more as like an extension of what venture is today and what tech is today. And so we just wanted a front row seat. Um, and so our conviction in it did not come in in 2020 and 2021 when we had, you know, uh, DeFi summer and, you know, the stimulus and all the money pouring into the markets where, and, you know, everybody was making money in crypto. It came before that. And we still have that long-term conviction in crypto. Um, we just might now have been delayed two, three, four, five years because of all the exuberance we had and the crash we had last year. Um, but I, we still believe that this is a business model innovation. And 10, 15 years from now, this will be within the general tech venture world. It won't be distinct and separate. But beyond that, I mean, we tend to shy away from sector-specific bets. So, like, even AI, my guess is we'll get AI exposure through our top seed and series A funds. Uh, we don't need, you know, somebody specific there. And so we tend to shy away from that. And by the way, you talk to a lot of the OGs within venture. Same thing was occurring in the 1990s. Like there were sectors there too. Yeah. And again, all anecdotal, you know, the OG VC firms are like, yeah, the generalist firms won out at the end. You do pick... Bees are curious to hear your view on crypto because I know you're investors and lots of managers that do crypto, um, but not necessarily specific crypto funds, maybe. Correct me if We've I'm done wrong. a bit of both. We've okay. done a bit of both. Um, we're open to both. Um, uh, same, same. I, I, I don't, yes. Yes to everything you said, Atul. We agree. Um, same reasons that we're doing it. I think if I, if I also take a step back and say, when have we People that get categorized as specialists versus generalists, I think sometimes a specialist is a bit of a misnomer because really it's just a theme or a perspective on the market, and it's that that we're that's resonating for us. I mean, I could even I could even talk about Nick. I remember when we first talked about notation, right? And you were talking about looking for the technical founders in the New York region. I, I wouldn't call that specialist per se, but it was a perspective, and you yep. had a reason for it, and you thought about what what it would take. Not and even within that, it's not like everyone who I wish it were true, but everyone who's a technical founder who starts a company just because you're a technical founder does not mean you're going to exit in a fifty billion dollar you know reign of money. Which would that it were true? Probably not. Um, but you had a perspective, you had a line of sight, you knew what made them what made within that category what you were looking for, and that for us resonates. And again, you could call that specialized. I just I think would probably call that generalist. But you have a point of view, and you know what you're looking for. And some folks in AI have that. To your point about Lon, she was thinking about this long before six months ago. <laughs> Same thing with crypto. The people that are doing it. Some folks are newer to it, but they're they're there for a reason. They're not just there because. Yeah. Again, it goes back to the if you want to take advantage of like the hot money, go for it. But I don't think generative AI is a low valuation right now from what we're seeing in the market. So not, not one of those buy low things going on, I don't think. <laughs> I, think <it's, laughs> I think it's hypier than I, even even the top of the crypto hype cycles. It's, Why do you think that is? It could change the world. I think there's, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's clearer, more understandable applications for it today. So when we've gone through many of these hype cycles, right? Like we're good at this. Every year or two, there's... A totally. Cycle. totally. But, I mean, we should all do a history lesson and go back. I wish we did this as a firm. Every year record, what were the top five, ten hyped companies? And then look back five years later, ten years later, where the hell are they? You know, like, Whoa. I remember when scooters were the hottest thing. Like, where are they now? And every year, every 18 months, every 24 months, we go through some hype cycle. And you're right, Beezer. But yet, the people yet, that do this the best so were there who, years before. So why are, I mean, I think by the very nature of the notation model, 
we've never been able to or do the hypiest stuff. Um, why do why not? Films, why do you don't want to yeah, because it's human, small... human nature, right? Human nature. There's that shiny object. You get FOMO. You want to be close to it. You guys were in crypto how many years before people many years. knew about blockchain? Many, many years. Right? But so, so what do you do when you see a manager? I'm sure you're seeing it in your man, in managers today. Like, oh, we just funded three hypey generative AI companies at $200 million valuations at seed. Like, do you have a point of view? Do you have a conversation about it? Do you just say like, oh, oh, okay. Okay, I can tell this to all the managers out there. When your LP says, keep the bar high, the one translation of that is, OMG, what's going on with the valuations? And you're being very hypey, but I, you could be right, Mr. or Mrs. GP, Miss, whatever, yeah. whatever your pronoun is. Um, and maybe this company will exit at a hundred billion and then that's awesome. But there's some flavor of this in the market that, that has some historical precedence of it might be overinflated. Yes, keep the bar high is code for the, like this could be, you could be in, in whatever the right term is for the water is right. And if yeah. you're looking at a diversified portfolio, if it's like two or three companies that are in this category at that valuation, maybe you can be like, okay, we can survive, but you don't want it to be like the whole fund. Yeah. Um, and so as long as there's balance within the portfolio, it's always gonna pop up. You're always going to see a few of these hypey deals that you shake your head at. And five years later, you're like, yep, we were right. That was overhyped, <laughs> yeah. overpriced. Like, yeah. it doesn't make, didn't make sense then. Definitely doesn't make sense now. And I, I wish I had great examples of ones that were really high valuations going in and ended up being even higher coming out. I actually had this conversation with one of our GPs the other day because they, they want to track this too because they've been, they've been around for a couple of vintages now. And they have they're seeing this generative AI thing and they're trying to sort of think through like, at what point is it that do you pay up or do you not? And it was like, well, if we look back into history, how many times does the, the revenue multiple going in at a Cedar series A, is there any correlation if you overpay, like what happened? I, I, I'm betting is simple math alone. Isn't going to tell you what company is going to survive for all the obvious reasons, but um, it goes to a question of if it starts out super overhyped and overfunded, does that deteriorate the internal decision-making in a company? I bet you can point to like three or five companies over the past 20 years where it worked out, but everybody's hoping that the one they invest in, it will be the next one of those three or five, right? Which power law will say the answer is they can't be, right? They can't be. By definition. Yeah. But hopefully they get a few markups in the interim and their TVPI, Nick, looks great. <laughs> well, and I would say shout out to also potential for smaller funds to take some money off the table because... The power move now when the world's gone sideways is folks that were able to convert TVPI to DPI. And I think that's what we haven't talked about this. I think LPs are very conscious of who, who could convert and didn't. And who, like, if you couldn't convert, you couldn't convert. And like, it is what it is. But for those that didn't, either in the public markets or in the private markets, I think L LPs are not unaware. They can all choose differently on how to react, but they're, they're conscious of it, right? And Nick, back to your earlier question, what are, you, what are your great managers doing today? Again, back to what do the great managers do to Beezer's point in 2020, 2021? They got liquidity. Either they got companies out public, distributed those stocks, great. Or to your point, Beezer, if they're a seed fund, maybe they sold in a later round um, and returned a few turns of their fund. Um, if you couldn't get liquidity in 2020 and 2021, I don't know when you're going to get liquidity. Like those are the two best years we have had in since 99, 2000. So and the, other, yeah. the other aspect is LPs. I mean, we also, no, sorry, go, go ahead, Peter. I was saying LPs, I think one of the common myths is that if you're an endowment or a foundation, you don't need money back because you have this like in perpetuity con, uh, construct for your underlying fund. And that's, that's not untrue, but it, takes away the nuance, which is actually distributions feed the capital calls and all that, because if you are that kind of structure, you, you have to make distributions back to your operating budget of the endowment or the hospital or the school or whatever it is. And if there's no distributions coming back or significantly less in the next two years, that impacts everybody's math. It's not well, just- either, that's exactly, that's why the endowments are in a tough spot because um, they know there's no more distributions coming in. Funds were coming back to market sooner than before. Bigger funds, bigger commitments. 
TVPI went up because all these labor. So they're all over allocated. I mean, it's just it's like this perfect storm of they're they're increasingly writing bigger checks and bigger funds where the TVPI was going up. So their allocation, their their percentage of the overall endowment went up. And now they're not getting money back. They're all over allocated. They want valuations. They want markdowns so that they can start making commitments again. So, so do we see the fund of funds funds get smaller too? I, I think in general, um, we've, the we've market, talked about all the VC funds, the fund of funds also yeah. got very big. Yeah. Do we see them I think get smaller too? It's going to be a tougher environment to raise capital over the next 12 yeah. to 24 months. So if you're, if you're a fund of funds going out to market now, it's going to be tough. It's going yeah. to be really tough. Everybody's in the same boat here. It's not like anybody's immune to it. Um, so, I mean, good luck to those that are going out now. Yeah. Um, I had another one last question. That's why you need to be um, in Beezer's situation. I have one LP. That's it. <laughs> Beezer's like, I don't worry about this at all. <laughs> um, last question, I guess, is just uh, we talked about like good time to invest potentially now and looking back at this as a good vintage. Um, maybe other bright signs that you're seeing either in the market or green shoots in the market or um, things that are getting you excited beyond just maybe this is going to end up being a good vintage because valuations are a little bit lower. Do you want to start us off or do you want me to start us off? You, can you, can, you guys were both stumped. You're like, okay. you know, I've been, so there's the obvious, why is it a good time to invest? Because lower valuations, like gives more room for upside. But I sure. also yeah. think, because we've been hearing the same sort of like hand wavy, like it's a great time to invest, blah, blah, blah. But like, why is it? And it, the, my best answer right now is because I don't know anyone who's great, right? Great investor, great athlete, great artist, great thinker that doesn't understand the fundamentals of their subject. And I think the last handful of years, the fundamentals were just less top of mind or experienced. And in down markets, the fundamentals are just much more clear. And so if you haven't had a chance to really dig in and think about what the fundamentals of your business are, be an LP, GP, or entrepreneur, like you're going to learn it now. And that is an incredibly powerful thing because this is my, since I'm, I'm potentially the oldest person here, I don't know, Atul, you and I can compare birthdays we're later. Close. We're close. <laughs> we're close. Um, this is my third downturn. And it was just reflecting on like, yeah, it sucked. Like I lost my job in venture in the first one. Like that was not awesome by any stretch, right? But you learn a lot, and then when the times are really heady and great in 20, in 2020 and 2021, you can apply the awesome, easier potentially parts to the here's the tougher yeah. fundamental parts, and you get all you get the 360. And I just so I just think the business fundamentals right now people can learn them, and if they haven't before, it's awesome, and that's it's good to learn. That's my bias. I would agree with all of that. I just think in general you're seeing more discipline in the market. To your point, people um, understand. Um, that it's a tough fundraising environment for GPs, for companies. Uh, the bar is higher, higher than it's been over the past five years. Um, I think nothing but good is coming out of this environment. So um, I am more excited today than I was in 2020, 2021. I was not happy those two yeah. years. Even though marks were going up, it's just you could see the lack of discipline, the frothiness, and then at some point you had to pay the piper. Um, I am super excited about this environment. Like I am happier than I've been in many years in this business. So. I totally share that sentiment, hearing it from a lot of other GPs as well that were yeah. exhausted in 2021. Um, it got too easy. You could fund yeah. anything. It would look a lot better three to six months later, at least from a funding perspective. And um, a lot of a lot of lost discipline in that market. Totally. Also, just Twitter was exhausting. It was all... Uh, <laughs> It's all exhausting. Um, so this seems like a much more um, interesting, challenging market that we can actually learn something from. Yeah. Um, any last thoughts? Well, no. what's your guidance from your position, Nick? What are you seeing when you say like, what are LPs doing? What are you seeing your fellow GPs do? Are people raising, not raising? I, I have not seen, I'm seeing some fun ones, fun twos um, without meaningful DPI or metrics have a tough go of it um, and trying to figure out how to, particularly the ones that were non-institutional 
trying to become institutional and perhaps relying on that in the last year, I, I, I think we're seeing some, some challenges there. Um, but I'm also seeing new funds with truly differentiated people and strategies raise fund ones. Um, so I think it's, the funding is still there if you have a legitimately differentiated, unique approach. Um, seeing lots of people slow down. So 2020, 2021, fear of missing out of every single possible investment. I think you're, you are seeing basically 180 now. So a lot of fear in doing anything. Are you seeing valuations come down for the best seed companies or is there like a different, is there like a winner loser dynamic there too, where if it's the best, if it's a great seed company, it's still getting um, premium valuations. Hypey, AI, great team, 30, Even outside 40, of 50, AI? 50 posts. Even um, outside of AI or is it just less, less, so, less so out of AI. So yeah. starting to see things come down a bit. Uh, not as much as growth. Yeah. So maybe seed valuations have come down 20%, 25%. By the way, we did, I think this is PitchBook data that we saw, like, if you look over the past 10 years, Series D went up 10x from, like, an average of, like, 130 million to 1.3 billion. Series A went up 5x, but only from 10 to 50 or something. It was some numbers like that. I mean, so late stage just has more room to come down. It went up a lot, as was more to come down. So if you actually look at seed, it didn't, it's actually even more muted than Series A. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't expect that to come down as dramatically. So, and, and actually, if you look at all the dollars over the past 10 years, the super majority of it went to late stage. Yep. So this whole, this, most of the discussion about venture valuations being crazy is more mid to late stage. It's less so on the seed series A. And most of those dollars went to the top 10, yeah. 20 managers. Yeah. So I saw, saw a piece of data the other day that 70% of the capital raised in um, 2021 went to the top like 20 firms or something. And to make it full circle, that's why a lot of these opportunity funds were bigger than the main fund. And I'm hoping that changes now. I would say we've been we've been diving into pitch book data on the how funds matriculate over time. Like if you're like how many fund ones get raised in a year, fund twos, fund threes, and like basically showing that at some point between five and seven, you see funds not making the jump. And then if you do get past that, the the longevity function. And one of the things that's struck out to me, and at some point we'll organize this and share it more com comprehensively, is that you don't see the, all the dollars that have gotten raised. You're not seeing that in the core funds. Like maybe they've gotten up to like 800 or a billion, which is not petite, but it's not with the exceptions of like, you know, the insights and the tigers that were multi, multi-billion. Mostly all that other additional dollars went into growth vehicles. And so we didn't track that. We were just trying to track the underlying core fund development and how hard is it really to get through to a fund date. And my, my teaser thing is, yeah, it's pretty hard um, given the numbers and how they matriculate. But it was, I was really surprised that just how much of those dollars really went into those other vehicles. It was just, it's just very clear. And I hope that changes going forward. Yeah. I, mean, I think LPs there's also are, one thing, one thing I'd also later, LPs make those vehicles, right? Like they don't, they don't happen on their own. They don't. It's a, it's a dance, right? I mean, GPs also have a big say in that and LPs have a big say in it, but. I think in these types of markets, you can really tell which founders are serious about this. Um, maybe AI being the exception because it's so high key. Um, but. And I'd imagine that's true for LPs. You yeah. can really figure out like, okay, which GPs are in this for the long haul, want to do the work. It's maybe tougher and they raise less money, but they still want to do it. And um, I'd imagine that's easier for you to filter through now. Again, I'll go back. I think I learned a lot in 2020, 2021. I mean, you yeah. really saw who was disciplined, who was not, who was thoughtful, who was not, who who succumbed to FOMO, who had independent thought. Um, like I, I learned a lot from those two years. It's interesting to think about if those people knew whether or not that was actually going to be a true weighing machine for LPs, whether or not they would have made the same decisions. Yeah. 
Oh, is this where I say the comment of it depends on the management fee? <laughs> Maybe. So in other words, like, even if this is going to potentially jeopardize my future funds and business, like, screw it, I'll still do it. I don't know. I hope not, because that, that, that's a very painful reality. But I sometimes behavior, you're like, well, this kind of only makes sense because you're because the money, the management fees in near term, like essentially a loan against the future, um, the future carry because you have to return it. Right. It's not like you just get to keep it like you don't get yeah. returns on carry unless the management fees return. But if it's so large that the carry becomes sort of like ancillary in somebody's life, the incentive structure is just different. Well, Beezer, if you want to be more depressed, just <laughs> do the math on if it's a 2x gross fund and they take 20% carry. Just 2x gross, nothing heroic. Like, Okay, I'm going to need to cut all this out. My plan was to end on a positive note, on a positive, optimistic note. So we can feed and the carry on that. Can't your sound guys put this earlier and then end with a positive? They just need to. Exactly. We're going to have to do some serious editing. Okay, thank you guys so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. See ya.